Well, this morning we're going to look um, at what a great church looks like. And uh, the passage we're going to read is Acts chapter 4, if you'll turn. And uh, Steve's going to read. Now, not the entire passage because it's too lengthy and what I have to say will take too much time, though I'll try to finish on time. So uh, what we're going to do is ask Steve to read uh, a portion and then he'll move to a next portion and so on all the way through Acts 4 uh, from the NIV. Steve, read for us, if you will. Now, this is one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture. It follows verse 18 or 13, as where it says they took knowledge of the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized they didn't know much, and they were kind of ignorant guys, and they were absolutely amazed at the knowledge with which they spoke. And it was all because it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. So what happens when that kind of testimony is said of you is uh, in the day of the early church, you were arrested for it. And that's what we read about the arresting of Peter and John and then bringing them before the magistrate and what they were commanded not to do and what Peter responded. And then they went uh, before the congregation of the church uh, in order to report about it. And so... We're going to look this morning at what I believe to be what a great church looks like. Now, in my humble but accurate opinion, <laughs> one of the most overused words in the English language, maybe the most overused word, well, no, awesome is the most overused word, but the second most overused word is the word greatest. Greatest. Now think of that. Have you ever heard, oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. That's the greatest thing I've ever done. The greatest. I never will forget. In 2003, Sports Illustrated came out with their uh, face cover, the OU football guard, who was All-American, later signed in New Orleans, I think. But the title of Sports Illustrated said, uh, a scary thing. And then the article that I read started by, are we watching the greatest college football team ever? And then it went on to claim why, or show why that claim was true. Now that was 2003. And frankly, uh, OU was undefeated. Uh, going into the Big 12 championship, Mary and I went to Kansas City to see the game. Sat up in the you know, the tall part where the wind never stops. And it was 29 degrees, 28 degrees. Mary stays warm, but I never do. That's a lie. She was freezing to death. I mean, it was bitter cold. And Kansas State whooped the Sooners. The greatest, yeah, whooped the greatest. Then we went down to play LSU for the national championship, and LSU whooped us too. The greatest team ever? I don't think so. 
in the days when I was traveling a lot to go to, I'm still traveling, but not nearly as much. I used to go from church to church in the, my heritage, my background uh, denominationally, and I'd go to churches and do Bible conferences on. I was going to this particular church in Texas. One of my friends said, oh, it's the greatest church in the state of Texas. Man, I was excited. Big church, huge church, greatest church in Texas. I went down there, and what I found was uh, the people were mad at the deacons, and the deacons was mad at the pastor, and the pastor was mad at the people. And in other words, it was a typical Southern Baptist church if you're a Baptist <laughs> like I was. <laughs> you know. The greatest church? I don't think so. I never will forget. I was in a little church, a little of uh, my background in those days. And the young pastor, I had pastored him while he was in seminary. And he had asked me to come and, he little, you know, run about 120 sons. Great little group of people. And so he introduced me. And he said, this is my pastor, my friend, my seminary pastor. He's the greatest preacher I've ever heard. <laughs> Finally, somebody got it right. I'm, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I am joking, Okay. You don't know me well enough to know that I'm joking, but I am. Uh, in other words, how would you know that something is the greatest unless you've experienced every one of them? I mean, it would be impossible to know. Well, let's forget the greatest. And let's just think of the word great. I'll, I'll settle for knowing what a great church looks like. You know what I mean? Well, the truth is, I think... Uh, when you want to find out what a great church looks like, the best place to go is Acts chapter 4. One of the early churches, one of the early congregations. Now somebody said to me one time when I was teaching this, uh, why didn't you use a uh, modern church? We have some great modern churches, and that's true. Except there's something about the churches of the book of Acts that uh, it was incredible as far as I can tell. Uh, when I finished my pastoral ministry, 40 years of pastoring, 1996 came to an end and I've been traveling ever since. Um, I was teaching on Wednesday night through the book of Acts. And I, it's one of the most uh, delightful times I've ever had. I mean, it was fun. And I was amazed how when you go through the book of Acts, you find out that those people were so profound in their faith. I mean, there was a power about them. There was, basically, there was a purity. They had to deal with it on occasion. But it was amazing what the church in the book of Acts was. But one of the things that I really realized is how simple they were. They didn't have any revival meetings or Bible conferences or Bible school. It was just such a simple thing. And you know, what I've become convinced of is that it may be the power of the Holy Spirit may be related to the simplicity with which we hold our faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Take the verse that says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, most of us read that verse and think, you shall know the truth. And boy, here's the truth. There's the truth. The Word of God. And if you know the Word of God, the truth, if you study the doctrines, if you know the principles of the Scripture, 
you'll be set free. Well, that's wonderful. I agree with that. But that's not what that verse is saying. First of all, they didn't have the library of books when that verse was given. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. See, in their mind, they understood that Jesus himself was the truth. Okay? So the truth is not a book about something or someone. The truth is the person about whom the book speaks. Are you following? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except but, but by me. And so we think, well, if you just study doctrines and if you just know the five points of Calvinism or if you know all the doctrines of the church of God and practice them and all that, then you will really be free. That's not what the New Testament's saying. What it's saying is, if you really know, that word know is a word which means intimately know, like Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived. If you really intimately know the one who is Jesus himself, you will absolutely be free. And you know this early church had a simple faith that Jesus was who he said he was and had done what he said he would do and was in them who he said he would be. They had that simple faith. And so they related the Lord Jesus to everything in their life. In fact, John Gill... Uh, one of my favorite uh, theologians of the uh, 18th century made this statement. He said, um, Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And the sense in this verse, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, is not that they should know more doctrine, but they should know more of him. The dignity of his person, his nature, and the efficacy of his blood, the excellency of his righteousness and his grace, and know it for themselves intimately. In other words, they knew Jesus. They were so simple in that. And that's what made them great. Okay? So I'm going to take the church in Acts, in, in Acts chapter 4. And I want to show you what I believe a great church looks like. First of all, I want you to notice with me that they, um, a great church has eyes for God alone. Now, you'll notice in the verse that we read, it says this, uh, that you're the God of creation of all things, and then it ends with this phrase, and all that in them is. In other words, they saw God as not just the one who created it all, but who was in charge of everything that happens in it. Now that's interesting, because what caused them to go to the Lord in prayer was the persecution that started with the rest of Peter and John, and the threat that was made to Peter and John to speak no more in the name of Jesus. And so they prayed, Lord, we look to you, the one who created everything, and in effect, what they were saying is, even the persecution that's coming our way. Wow. Now, I've shared with you on one occasion about the three kinds of suffering that we will have as Christians. You can take it to the bank. There is the Jesus kind. That's because of devotion. When you're really devoted to Jesus as Lord of your life, somebody's going to be 
upset about it, somebody's going to create problems for you because of the Jesus kind of devotion, you see? But then there's also uh, the uh, Job kind of suffering, and that's because of development. In other words, we all pray, Lord, help me to be more patient. How many of you have prayed that? Lord, increase my patience. The New Testament says patience comes through trials, tribulations. And so the Lord says, okay. And he begins to increase our patience. But all at once we begin to see things go wrong. And then we wonder, well, wait a minute, Lord. But you see, that's the Job kind for development. Jesus kind is for devotion because of devotion. The Job kind is because of development. And then of the Jonah kind, pastor's been reminding us on Sunday morning, and it was because of disobedience. And of course the Lord steps in with a disciplinary kind of love in order to correct a, jo a Jonah or us, you see? But we're going to face troubles. Best way I can say it is this. Do you realize that when you invite someone to know Jesus, you in effect, I in effect, will be saying, like if you were going to go buy a new car, and uh, the guy that's selling it to you takes you on a test ride, and as you're riding on the test ride in a new car, he says, now by the way, uh, it won't be long before your back's going to hurt a little bit, your legs are going to be cramped a little, your billfold is going to be emptied, paying for the lousy gas mileage that this car has, but I want to sell it to you. Do you realize that's a little bit of what we're doing? When we talk about people becoming Christians, we're inviting them to find themselves in those cramped positions sometimes, uh, find themselves in those times when uh, it's really tough going, and uh, of all things, uh, once in a while, it looks like things are going to stop running because you haven't got anything to go with it. And how in the world is it going to happen? And yet we say, now come on and love Jesus with us. But that's exactly what it is to become a Christian. And this church knew it. They knew it. But in the midst of it all, they had eyes for God alone. You see what I'm saying? They really believe Romans 8. See? All things work together for the good of those who have been redeemed by the grace of God. In other words, they had eyes for God in the midst of everything. That's the first thing that I would want to say to you about a church that's great. Second thing I'd want to say is this. A great church is eager to obey the word of God. They're eager to obey. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Acts 1, verse 8. We won't go to it, but you know it. You shall tarry here in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high, and you shall become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, the word witness in the Greek language is the root word, is a word for, uh, from the root word martyr. In other words, when you testify of who Jesus is and what he did, you're taking your life in your own hands. The Greek language even identifies that. You see? But Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. Now, do you remember 
what the crowd said to Peter and John when they were arrested, or the, the Sanhedrin said to them, speak no more in the name of this Jesus. So here is the church meeting, by the way. When Peter and John came, they just shared with the whole congregation everything that they'd been told. And uh, so the whole congregation began to pray. And in it, they had eyes for God alone. And in it, they had only a desire to obey the word of God. Did you notice that in their prayer that Steve read a moment ago, they didn't pray for God to destroy their enemies. They didn't ask the Lord to defeat the devil. They didn't even request that God deliver them from persecution. You know what they prayed for? The courage to speak the name of Jesus no matter the cost. In other words, a great church not only sees God first and only in the midst of everything, but they have one passion in their life, and that is to obey whatever God tells them to do. Knowing we can't, we have to trust him to empower us. That's why we're praying, Lord, empower us to be what you want us to be. Courage in the face of losing our lives because they knew they were going to keep on witnessing. And that meant that they were going to face their destruction. Now, the idea here is um, God answered their prayer. Verse 31, look at it. The scripture says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Are you following me here? It literally was the power to be what God had commanded them to be and to do. Had an interesting question as I came in this morning. Really liked the question. It answers, it has to be answered only in one way, and that is, you know, when we're asked to forgive those who really hurt us like we were last week, uh, we choose to forgive them, but we can't. It's not within us to forgive. You're right. It is not within us to forgive. We have to forgive as we've been forgiven. Amen. So we see how we're forgiven, and we're to choose to forgive that way. Now, we have to remember, forgiveness doesn't have a period. It has a comma. And depending on the depth of the pain, is how long your journey is. But the fact is, you and I can't forgive anyone. He has to empower us to forgive, to love, to whatever. But the point is, he does. He does. And their desire was not to be delivered from their enemies or even for the devil to be defeated. Their desire was for them to be obedient to whatever God had called them to do. Now, that's a great church. Not everybody's going to understand what we're doing. Not everybody's going to like what we're doing as God's church. But the fact is, a great church has eyes for God only and ears to obey the Word of God. Then there's a third thing. And that is, a great church encourages one another. I love verse 32. Look at it, what it says. In verse 32, the Scripture declares this. 
And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, so that no one said, mm, what I have is mine and you can't have it. Oh, no. They had all things in common. In other words, if you have a need that I can help, I'm going to be there for you. That's what a great church is all about. They encourage one another. You see that? So evangelism was a, a preeminence, was a preeminent thing for them. They spoke the word of God boldly. But right in line with that is they encouraged one another personally. A great church never does one to the exclusion of the other. A great church will never make evangelism all of it and forget the people in bonding and helping and ministering to the people. A great church will never just be ministering to themselves and never evangelizing. A great church is the merger, the marriage of both of those things. And look what happened in verse 33. And with great power, Gave, uh, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. In other words, the word great's there. That Acts 4 church is a great church. And that's what I believe a great church looks like. Eyes for God alone, no matter the difficult circumstances that ever come. A desire to obey what he wants us to to do knowing we can never do it we have to have his power to accomplish it and then loving on people in the midst of it all while we tell the story of Jesus to anyone that will listen now what I want to do in the closing moments is I want to talk to you about a personal thing Mary and I have been a part of this fellowship Crossings Community Church. Pastor has no idea. I'm saying this. Staff has no idea. I'm saying nobody has any idea what I'm about to say except my wife. And she not only knows what I'm going to say, she can say it better than I say it. But this is what I want to say to you. I want to give you, we've been here one year and one month. We're part of this fellowship. We're, we're just like you. We're part of the body of Christ. That part, that portion called Crossings Community Church. Okay? I want to give you a, an assessment. Personal assessment from a kind of a new guy and gal on the block. And what we see in Crossings Community Church. I wrote it down there, four things. I just didn't tell you what they were. Because you might have read them and left before I finished. Good chance. I'm smart, you know. Here we go. The first thing I want to say is this. For Crossings Community Church, from my perspective, and my perspective only, I'm not saying how anybody else sees it, I'm telling you how I see it. Jesus is front and center. In other words, the front and center thing in a lot of churches is not the person of the Lord Jesus, but a set of doctrines, Amen. a set of statutes, a set of identifiable. In other words, it's like that sign I saw in Arkansas where it said uh, 
of, of a little Baptist church, and that was at that time uh, what I was relating to, uh, not this kind, but that's where I was. And on the little church building there in the mountainside, huge sign said, Fundamental, Independent, Premillennial, King James Version, Missionary, Baptist Church. And what they were saying is, if you're not uh, this and this and this and this and this, no. don't you come. No. Are you following me? Now, you know, some way or other, you miss the boat in a local fellowship when the emphasis, I'm not saying that any one of those is wrong. I'm just saying when the emphasis is this or this or this or this or this, we might have varying opinions about some of those things. We might not agree on all of the issues that are named on some of the signs. But what is the one thing about which and around whom we can agree? Who the person of the Lord Jesus is and what he did on the cross called Calvary and the empty tomb. And so we celebrate who? The Lord Jesus well, what do you believe about? Oh, I'd be glad to tell you anytime, anytime. We can talk about it. Well, I don't see things that way. Oh, I understand. Hey, wonderful. But Jesus is first and foremost. Am I, am I, you understand what I'm saying? It is one of the biggest blessings of this old guy's heart to be a part of a family. And I've been there. I pastored some there. We were there and others before. I'm not saying we're the only one. I'm just saying I'm grateful that Jesus has front and center in this fellowship. Second thing I'd say is this, from my perspective only, our teaching pastor is relational. Now, you don't know what that does for me. I mean to tell you, I believe personally that the New Testament is not a book of principles to do. It's a book of relationships to be. In other words, uh, the Beatitudes are not the do-attitudes. We're not to be, as I heard Steve say not too long ago, human doings, but human beings. See, the emphasis of the New Testament is not on doing forgiveness. The emphasis is on learning to relate the Lord Jesus enough that you know you're forgiven, therefore learn to relate in forgiveness to another person. Does that make sense? That's what Christianity is all about. Because Christianity is not what you do. It's who Jesus is and what he's already done. In the New Testament, there's what we call the imperatives. That's the commands. But there's also... Uh, uh, there's, the, there's the lingo in the Greek language of the things that are already done by Jesus. And the book of Romans start with all those things that he's already done. Then the imperative start in chapter 12. Therefore you. In Ephesians, all the things that has already been accomplished by the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 4, walk you therefore worthy. In other words, we're to do and to be in light of what already has been done. Does that make sense? That's where we are, and that's what relationship is all about. I, I love his teaching. I love his preaching, but I love his heart of relationship above everything else, and I'm talking about our senior pastor who has no clue I'm telling you this, okay? 
It is amazing to me. And by the way, the men that I've heard and the women, greatest sermon I've ever heard, Melissa preached two years ago. I wasn't part of this fellowship. We came on a Sunday. And here stood this young lady and shared the Lord Jesus and how her broken life had been put together. And I'm telling you, I was on hallelujah, hootin' nanny shouting ground. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? It's relational. And that's where we're led in this church. And I'm grateful for it. Third thing, hang with me here. The one another's have preeminence in our worship Sundays. The one another's. I don't think it's accidental that our pastor just finished a series of messages on the one another. You know there are 18 of them. I think it's 28, 18 or 28. One another's in the New Testament. And the one another's is simply what we're to be together. Do you know when we come together on the Lord's Day, a lot of people think our purpose is coming for one reason only. That's to worship the Lord. That's a good thing to come for, but it's not the one thing we come only. According to the New Testament, we come for the one another's to encourage each other, to edify one another, to enjoy one another. Worship of God is 24-7. Every moment we live, we live worshiping God. Now, it's fun to come together and worship Him as only we can here at Crossing. But the point is, the one another's are preeminent. Hallelujah. I'm on a shouting ground. And then the final thing that I want to mention is that our mission statement, as far as I'm concerned, is beyond beatable. I mean, it's, it's amazing. A Christ-centered church committed to living by faith while being a voice of hope and being known for our love. Who in the world started us off in this journey? You know, because whoever it was, I want to hug their neck, kiss them on both cheeks. Pastors preaching this morning a new series called Are We There Yet? I've not heard his message. I don't know what he's going to say. I'm assuming he's going to say, well, we're not there yet, but we're on our way. And what I'm saying to you is, I'm day one thing I know, we're on the right highway. We're on the right road. Have we put it all together? No. Are we without our flaws? Absolutely not. Marty's the first to remind us of that. But where are we headed to being a great church? But we can't be it on our own. It takes an empowering of the one who is himself our life, the Lord Jesus, living in and among us. Now this is what I view as a great church. I didn't have to do this much more. I wanted to do it. It's a kind of a personal testimony of what I see in the fellowship God's given to us. Now, next Sunday, Lord willing, the creek don't rise. I'm going to bring a message on a miracle and then on the final on a parable. We're going to look at one miracle and one parable. Then we'll be back to some sense of sanity with our teacher getting uh, home and getting in the, uh, the saddle and doing the job. All right? Uh, any... Uh, uh, oh, listen to me. Dan, would you come up here, sir? Uh, he's told me he's going to read right through it, and he'll have to because we're going to be finished here. But I want you, he wrote this. I want you to hear this. Read that for us. All right. You don't need a microphone for this guy. I am the Lord that forgives all your sins, Psalms 103. It is forgiveness, period, not forgiveness, calmness. 
common. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He forgets our sins. It is written that if I don't forgive, then my Father in heaven will not forgive me. No sin is any more or less egregious. I have broken all ten commandments. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I have been forgiven of much, so I have more to be grateful than someone who hasn't been forgiven of much. I was told that I was from another planet and that I didn't know the rules. The rules are, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourselves. He who the Son makes free is free indeed. That's why I raise my hands in praise to the Father who loves me. No one has ever had a child that raised his arms and asked to be held and was refused. My Father does not refuse my love and worship. I have confessed something that I did almost 60 years ago. I went to the person and apologized and was forgiven. I have confessed to the Father and the world, yet I have been told that I have offended everybody. Our only job on earth is to worship the Father and be transformed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in those being transformed to guide them in all truth. Is this group, is this a group of whitewashed tombs or people being transformed in his love, Dan? All right. Thank you, Dan. That's his personal response to what was said last week, and he just wanted to share it with us. I told him I wasn't sure we'd be able to, but I was able to get through with what I wanted to say to you in time to be able to hear this. So thank you, Dan. Thank all of you for being here today. And I want to pronounce a benediction upon you. Uh, you know, I just, I will. I'll just pronounce my benediction. And my benediction, you know, most preachers pronounce them with such dignity. They have a voice that sounds like God, like Dan. Dan. You know, that, that makes me mad. A voice like that in hair too. Life is not fair, I'm telling you. But I don't have that kind of dignity. Here's my pronouncing of a benediction upon you. Hug three necks, shake three hands, and go hear a great message on Are We There Yet? All right? You're dismissed. Thank you for coming.